What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, our guest is Bruce Sackman. Bruce has quite the story to tell. He's a... Well, Jerry, what the hell is this title? It's like five miles long. (laughs) This is a tough one, guys. Uh, So bear with me while I try and read this. There's no way I'd remember it. So Bruce (laughs) Sackman served as the special agent in charge, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, Office of Inspector General, Criminal Investigations Division, of the Northeast Field Office until May 2005. And we found out that basically he did investigations on all medical serial killers. Yeah, he had a special interest in the VA. I guess that was kind of, that was where the big break happened for him. Yeah, that was his forte. Yeah, that's where he he met met his first serial killer case. But Uh, he definitely branched out from there because I guess he he kind of started all of the investigations there and found the things that, you know, kind of tied all of them together. This one blew my, blew me away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Because, you know, especially with the VA, I don't think about uh, doctors killing all their patients, but as Bruce found out, he went and investigated this, uh, this first person, lo and behold, everyone's killing everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking murdering people left and right. It's insane. Uh, not not insane enough to stop going to the doctor, as I bring up multiple times in this episode. <laughs> um, but I was surprised just how many medical professionals just go around killing people. All right. So before we get into this one, guys, check out the YouTube. We should be able to put up some images and whatnot so you guys can get a close look into medical serial killers. Without further ado, here's Bruce Sack. Bruce, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, what, uh, what kind of exciting things have you been up to lately? Because you have been living the true crime life. Well, I have been actually. And uh, I've been traveling around the world speaking about this uh, interesting and unique topic of medical professionals who murder their patients. And when I say murder their patients, I'm not talking about a, like a Dr. Kevorkian type. Right, right. I'm talking mm. about people, doctors and nurses who actually murder their patients throughout the world, actually. So not, not like the angel of death thing, but actually now that we're on that for a second, as someone who spent a lot of time investigating medical murder, how do you feel about assisted suicide? Is that, has know, that kind of colored different. your opinion? That's different. I actually don't have a problem with it if it's done the way I do it correctly, being that the patient, the family, uh, the physicians, and usually in some countries, they actually have a committee of people who look at the request. So the patient's physicians and social workers and psychiatrists, and they all sort of get together. And if they honestly believe that There's nothing more that could be done for the patient, that Mm -hmm. the patient is just suffering. Then I would actually support, uh, uh, you know, a physician assisted suicide. That's a hard thing to get everyone on the same page at times. So usually you can get the patients, the doctors and everyone else. But the family to get on that same page can be uh, a little hairy at times. (laughs) 
it can be difficult, but I, I've actually seen it. And, um, you know, you have to remember there are some people, some cancer patients and all that are just suffering terribly. Oh, absolutely. And just to go in and see them day after day suffer, you know, that usually most most of the family members and, and most of the physicians will be on board. I mean, it's a last resort, obviously. Oh, absolutely. But so you were talking about you're seeing doctors actually murder people where you seeing this everywhere. Oh, it's all over the world. I mean, you could just Google it and you could trace it all over the world. But my experience actually began at the V.A., when I was the special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. Mm. And the purpose of the Office of Inspector General is to ferret out fraud, waste and abuse in various agencies. Like the Department of Defense will have their own Inspector General and Department of Labor, et cetera, et cetera. So I was actually in charge of the Criminal Investigation Division of the Office of Inspector General for the VA, and I covered all the VA hospitals from West Virginia to Maine. And that was a lot, a lot of work and a lot say. of hospitals. But I had never actually come across a uh, physician murder until one day I got a call uh, in my office in New York City from the uh, chief of psychiatry at the Northport, Long Island VA Medical Center. And she said, uh, you know, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we actually have a physician working here who spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. Now, I didn't think <laughs> that in the United States of America, you could spend time in prison for poisoning your co-workers, come out and be a physician. But I was At the wrong. VA, no less. <laughs> At the VA, that's right. Treating our nation's heroes. I couldn't actually believe it, but it's absolutely true. And that doctor's name was Dr. Michael Swango. And that's what started my journey of 20 plus years now of locating, identifying, and investigating medical professionals who murder their patients. Now look, the overwhelming majority of medical professionals are honest, hardworking, dedicated. Oh, absolutely. People. I mean, the last hospital I was at working at, I mean, I saw doctors perform miracles, miracles saving lives. Okay. But if you think about it, just think about this for a minute. If you're so inclined to commit a series of murders, what professions and what location do you think you might choose? Oh, okay. I mean, you do think about doctors on the whole, because so many of us have no clue what they're doing. We just openly are like, yeah, sure, give it to me, whatever. I don't, you, you know best. I'm putting all my trust in you. So it's so it would be so easy to do. That's exactly right. So if you think about it now, okay, so what profession and what location? Well, for one, you might want to choose a profession where you have the power of life and death over an individual. Now, right. what professions do we know have that power? <laughs> okay. yeah, only a few. As doctors yeah. and politicians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might also want to choose a profession where you and your coworkers take an oath to save lives to protect lives, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're working in an environment where people have dedicated themselves to saving lives, it's gonna be very, very difficult for coworkers and other people to think 
that you're actually intent on taking lives. After all, look, you know, the doctors have that Hippocratic oath, mm-hmm. you know, where they will do a patient no harm. And many nurses have a similar kind of oath referred to as a Florence Nightingale oath. So when you're working in that kind of environment where everybody has dedicated themselves to saving lives, it's going to be very, very difficult to believe that one of your coworkers who took that same oath is intentionally killing somebody. So this first guy that you heard of, did he end up actually killing someone other oh, than? He killed about 60 people. Oh, and I want to tell you something. <laughs> you know what? There's a big difference between medical serial killers and what I guess we could refer to as your traditional serial killers. You know, mm-hmm. traditional serial killers, maybe they kill six, seven people. Yeah. Oh, they're amateurs. Amateurs compared to my Six, medical serial killers. Oh, the average kills at least 30 people, I would say. What? Before they're re- they kill many, many patients before they're even identified, before they're even suspected of killing people because of that environment that they're working in. You know, they're not they're not targeting prostitutes. They, they, you know, they're, they're not targeting people that are jogging, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you know, some lonely place. They're working in a hospital where everybody trusts them, where the family and the patients trust them implicitly. And, you know, if you think about it, how many people even question, as, as you brought out a minute ago, what that doctor and nurse is even doing? To them, you know, look, they just want to get better. They're in a I lot would say of it's probably like 40% don't question a thing. And then maybe right. another 30% might question it, but like it's just surface. And then you have another 30 that won't do anything or won't question well, everything. Of course. And how many times have you even seen like an emergency room where the strong and assertive sort of become the meek and mild? You know, where there's like really big construction workers scared of this nurse who's coming over with this big needle. Oh, I'd be dead because I just let the doctor do whatever. I'd be screwed. That's what I mean. I've I've been to the doctor many times and I only questioned one thing one time. I was going in for surgery and uh, laying in in the hospital bed waiting for them to bring me into the room. And the nurse comes over messing with my IV bag and I started to feel weird. And I looked over and she had a syringe that she was slowly putting in. And I stopped her. I said, what is that? We call this happy juice. (laughs) I immediately was like, I don't want any of that. I don't like how that feels. That's the only time in my life I've ever questioned a medical professional. Other than that, I'm I'm blindly following all of them. But see, you would have already been dead because you were already feeling. Doesn't that go to show you how easy it is for somebody to do something? All right. And not only that, let's say you choose a profession where there's a real shortage of people, especially during the pandemic. You know, we hear about all these nursing shortages, particularly in some parts of the country where it's very, very difficult to find doctors and nurses. So you know what? If we didn't do such a great background investigation before we hired these people, well, excuse me, you know how hard it is to find doctors? (laughs) You go all the way to the Philippines. Or even to Ireland sometimes just to get nurses because we can't find them here. You know, nursing is a very tough profession. You have to be small. You have to be strong, you know, and it's not so they have a very high burnout rate. So if we didn't do such a great job when we did their background investigation, excuse me, we really just couldn't find anybody. Well, a regular background check isn't even that deep anyways. 
It's better than it used to be. I'll tell you that. Better than it used to be. That's my other thing, though. I mean, nowadays, serial killers don't happen that often, right? Because it's too easy to get caught, right? There's too many cameras. There's too many people. But I would say the one area that you can find serial killers where it would be hardest would be in the medical field. Totally. And look, you know what? You're working in a place where death is an everyday common occurrence. Mm -hmm. If there's a death in a hospital or a nursing home, is that going to cause an investigation? Is that going to send the police in? Of course not, because not death is an everyday occurrence. And then, you know, if you've ever been on a hospital ward at, let's say, three o'clock in the morning, there's not that much activity going on. Maybe there's a nurse and the nurse's aide. So you work alone at night and then you could take that curtain and put that curtain behind you and the patient, and nobody's going to really see what's what's going mm. on there. And especially with these HIPAA rules, you know, cameras are very, very limited. They can only be in public places for the most part. And there's not going to really be uh, anybody to see. It's very, very hard, almost impossible in all these cases all over the world to find a witness that actually saw a medical professional kill somebody. The best thing you could do is get, well, I saw that nurse, Bruce, you know, go into the patient's room, pull the curtain behind him and the patient, walk out, and then maybe 30 minutes later, something happened. Mm. That's about as good as it's going to get. Don't don't they have to do autopsies on anyone who dies? Ah, autopsies. I could spend all day talking about autopsies. <laughs> but let me just say this. This is an interesting conversation. Hospitals don't do autopsies anymore because nobody wants to pay for it. You know, mm. autopsies used to be the greatest teaching tools for doctors ever. They cut it out. The insurance companies don't want to pay for it. I thought and, there were certain situations where they had to do it. No, and well, well. If you're talking about in in a hospital setting, Mm. there are some hospitals that don't do any autopsies at all. There are some hospitals that do very limited autopsies. But you have to remember, a hospital autopsy is not the same as a forensic autopsy. You know, when you see these autopsy shows on television and they're looking for a cause of death, that's different than a hospital autopsy. Yeah. A hospital autopsy is more as like a confirmatory autopsy. Could the patient have expired as a result of one or more disease processes? Yeah, he could have. Okay, case closed. All right. And you have to remember who's doing these autopsies. It's the employees of the hospital, not somebody, not an outside medical examiner. Yeah, it's not a third party. it's, It's, you know what? They really don't want to find something wrong they want to be able to say that the patient expired as a result of one or more of his disease processes and that's what all these killers consistently use as their defense in every case around the world anywhere else look when i was at the va and i had a look at patients folders and the va keeps a lot of patients a long time longer than the Mm -hmm. private hospitals And I had a look in a patient's medical records. It was like this thick. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could be alive and have so much wrong with you. (laughs) And I have to first start to prove that the patient was murdered. (laughs) Yeah, good luck. Very, very, very difficult. So were all these cases that you found were within the VA? 
Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, these cases are all over the world. The good thing about the VA is the VA has an inspector general to look Mm. at this, where the private hospitals don't have any inspector general. So Mm. unless a nurse comes or a doctor comes forward and makes a presentation to the police and convinces the police that they should do an investigation, chances are nothing's going to happen. And think about this. Look, most cops... Do not become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology. Okay, (laughs) so it's very, very easy for us to be intimidated by the science. We don't really understand the rules. You know, this HIPAA law. Gee, what records can we get? What records can't we get? Do we need a subpoena? Do we need a court order? I don't know. I'm so confused. Mm. And who am I to challenge these physicians and nurses who are all going to say that the patient expired from their natural disease processes? Well, I have a lot of other cases. I don't know if I really have the (laughs) time or the money to investigate these cases, you know? So So with with that being said, why did you decide that those were the cases that you were going to go investigate? Because, you know, that sounds incredibly hard to not only prove, but even figure out if it's happening. They are incredibly hard, but I felt an obligation to the veterans and their families um, to make a determination as to whether this guy, Swango, had actually murdered anyone at a VA hospital. Now, look, my, my dad was a World War II veteran. He spent a lot of time in the VA hospital. I understand how it is. And I, I felt a strong obligation just to see if this guy who had poisoned his co-workers was actually harming anyone at, at the VA. And I'll tell you a little bit about him, a little bit about Michael Swango. When Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as double O Swango, licensed to kill. Oh, nice. Because they actually felt that one of their fellow students was harming patients. It seems like every time Swango would visit a patient, something unfortunate would happen to that patient. In fact, there were even five suspicious deaths at the time that he was a medical student. So the students wrote a letter to the dean and they said, hey, dean, I don't think this guy Swango should be a doctor. (laughs) And the dean said, what do you know? You're only students. I'm the dean. I think he should be a doctor. You know, maybe he needs a little bit more training. We'll keep him a little bit longer. But I I think he'll be a doctor. And he did become a doctor. And and he graduated Southern Illinois University Medical School. And his first internship was at Ohio State University Medical Center. And at Ohio State University Medical Center, there was a young student. She was a gymnast. Her name was Cynthia McGee. Cynthia McGee got into a car accident with another student, and she was actually improving until she got a visit from Dr. Michael Swango. Mm-hmm. Then she died unexpectedly. But did Michael Swango get charged for that? No. The student that hit her with his car got charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. That just makes it even worse. Swango, that's right. Swango had killed something McGee. Well, at, at Ohio State, they said, wait, what's going on here? It seems like he's visiting people and something's happening, but we can't really prove it because it's so hard to prove. So Swango leaves, his internship's over, 
and he goes and he becomes an, an, an emergency medical technician for an ambulance company back home in Illinois. And uh, one day he brings in donuts for his co-workers and they all get sick. And he calls them up and he says, tell me the symptoms. Tell, tell me what's wrong. Tell me everything that happened to you. See, he wanted mm-hmm. to relive the excitement of poisoning them twice. Well, they suspected something, but they weren't sure. Well, about two weeks later, he comes in with iced tea. He says, hi, guys, here's some iced tea. But these EMTs were not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they, they took the iced tea and they had it tested and had an arsenic in it. And they called the police and the police did a in great investigation. They went to his home. They found arsenic and poison, books on arsenic. And he was convicted and spent five years in jail for poisoning his co-workers. That's all you get is five years for poison. How many co-workers did he poison? I'm trying. I don't remember the number, actually, but it, it was it like had five, be a decent yeah. amount. <laughs> you know what? You know, so he got five years. He comes out and he, being a sociopath, he is a very, very convincing person. If you sit mm-hmm. down and, and chat with him, as I did. And he uh, he comes out and he he goes through a little name change and he was very clever. What he did is he actually forged a whole bunch of documents showing that he had only spent six months in jail. You know, he was an ex-Marine and he he only spent six months in jail for poison, uh, not for poisoning his coworkers, but he claimed that, that he actually was in a barroom brawl. And as a tough ex-Marine, he got sentenced to six months in jail, not five years. But the governor of the state restored his civil rights. And people bought this. They didn't do much of an investigation. They bought into it. Next thing you know, he's working at a VA hospital on the West Coast, and he meets a VA nurse. And they fall in love, and they get engaged. And everything's working fine until the story comes out about him poisoning his coworkers and spending five years in jail. Well, his fiance obviously gets very, very upset and they break up and she flies back home to Virginia to be with her mom. And she says, you know, I'm so, so hurt. I really love this guy. I've been getting a lot of headaches and all since all of this happened. And one day she goes to the park, she takes out a gun and she blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, yes, you can, because even though the body was cremated, the family kept a lock of her hair and we had it tested and it was loaded with arsenic. He was even poisoning his own fiance. What year year was this starting? Was this going on? This goes back to the 80s. And then when I met him, it was in the early 90s. Damn. And then... uh, to make a long story short, he winds up at the uh, in Northport, Long Island, VA. And what happened was Northport, VA, has a teaching arrangement with Stony Brook Medical Center on Long Island. So he goes for an interview in Stony Brook, Long Island. And guess what field he goes? He goes for a residency in psychiatry. So that means he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists (laughs) and convince them that he should be in the program. And he did just that. And he he winds up working at the VA. And then I got that phone call. So I hopped in the car with one of my agents and we went down to meet him. 
and he was a handsome, charming oh, the guy who looked like a movie star. He was tan. He was wearing his aviator sunglasses, cool and calm as could be. You know, if I didn't know better, I'd want to introduce him to my daughter. I mean, here's mm-hmm. a, if she brought home a handsome ex-Marine doctor, I'd go, wow, this, guy, this is terrific. This is terrific. So I start chatting with him, and then, you know, I, I, I tell him what the allegations are, and he goes through that whole story about being in jail you know, only for six months, the whole thing. And then I asked him for permission to search his room, and then his attitude changed completely. Changed completely. So he told me to leave, which I had to do. And um, I wanted to get a search warrant, but the U.S. attorney uh, at the time said, uh, you don't have enough probable cause for a search warrant because you don't have any evidence that he committed any crime at all on mm. So he left and he travels overseas and he winds up in Zimbabwe, Africa. And when he's in Zimbabwe, Africa, he kills women and children, mm. pregnant women, tempted to poison his landlady. But he has to come back to the United States to renew his passport. And when he comes back, we arrest him, but not for murder, because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody at that time. For what was and still is every federal agent's favorite crime which is lying to a federal agent. So he lied to me. <laughs> yeah, about the prison, <laughs> he lied right? To me because he gave me that whole story about six months in jail and a whole bit, and he lied on his paperwork. So he got three years in jail for lying to me. And uh, that gave us three years to do an investigation to try to find out if he had murdered anybody at the Northport VA Medical Center. Now, let me tell you something. Prior to this, I had never done a homicide case in my entire life. I spent a whole career doing hospital investigations, but they were like bribery investigations, um, theft of drugs, um, you know, all every other hospital investigation you could think of, but never actually a murder. So how do I do this? How do, how, do, how do I begin like this? So my boss said, you know, Bruce, we're going to introduce you to somebody that's going to help you. And they introduced me to uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, the uh, forensic medical examiner. He used to have a show on, on TV called Autopsy years mm-hmm. ago. I, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And he, and he every time there's a, like a famous death, or something, you, you'll always see him, see Michael Bodden. So he says, all right, Bruce, this is what we're going to do. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to pull every medical record of every patient who was at the Northport VA at the time that Swango was there. Then we are going to assemble a team. And this team is going to consist of Michael Bonin, of course, as a forensic pathologist. Um, We're going to have a a toxicologist from the private sector, a a firm called um, National Medical Services, which is the largest private forensic firm in the country. Um, we're going to have doctors who are expert at reading charts because they're going to be able to make a determination if based on the records, there doesn't seem to be any apparent reason why that patient expired when they did. Mm. And also on this team, we're going to have, uh, at that time, a relatively new profession called forensic nursing. 
And these are nurses that are trained in both nursing science and forensics. And they were awesome. They were fantastic. They actually gave an understanding to me of what the doctors were saying, which was many times above <laughs> my head. All right. But they kind of dumbed it down for me, yep. which was very, they got to translate I, that language. I really appreciate it. And so the team narrowed it down to about five cases where it appeared to us that, um, the deaths should not have occurred. And, you know, Michael Bonin explained natural death to me like this. Natural death is like if you shut off a fan and the blades gradually slow down and stop. But these people, he said, it's like turning off a light bulb. They were bright one minute and dark the next. And we can't really explain why that happened. All right. So the next thing we had to do was go visit the families of the veterans. And we had to ask them uh, this question. We would say, you know, ma'am, sir, um, it's come to our attention that your dad's death at the VA may have been of a suspicious nature. Can we have your permission to go to the cemetery and exhume their body and run tests? Imagine getting a visit like that. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, it'd be a lot to handle. Rehash the whole damn thing. It is a lot to handle. But the families were great. They were really fantastic. Once in a while, they actually want to come and, and, and see the exhumation themselves. Other times they didn't. And when they came, we were, of course, very, very respectful. My agents used to bring flowers for the family. You know, we were always very respectful for them. Mm. So now I found myself, someone who had never done a case like this before, at a cemetery, and Michael Bonin, the medical examiner, shows up, and there's the backhoe, and the backhoe comes, and... <laughs> digs up the ground and, you know, they put the ropes underneath and they, they pull the coffin up. And the next thing you know, Michael Bonds jumps into the gravesite and takes soil samples. So what's that for? He says, well, we have to test the soil to see if there's arsenic in the soil, because if there's yeah, arsenic in the out. soil and we find arsenic in the body, they're going to claim that it's the arsenic from the soil that creeped into the body. Wow. Okay. Then we go to the local, you know, medical examiner's office. And next thing you know, they're cutting the body open. Now, I had never seen anything like this before. It's a bit of a culture experience. Some people oh, yeah. have a tougher time with it than others. I was okay. Uh, some, some people had a tough time with it. And, um, and there I am. And next thing you know, Michael Bond's pulling out the heart. And he shows me the heart. And he says, you see, Bruce, the death certificate said they died from heart disease. There's nothing wrong with this guy's heart. And then I learned something about death certificates. You know, I always thought that a death certificate was signed by the physician who cared for the person, you know, and had knowledge yeah. of what the cause of death is. But it's often not that way at all. In fact, mm -hmm. there's a fascinating story about death certificates and uh, deaths in a, the borough of Staten Island. In, in New York. This is what, a quick story. This is what happened. People were looking at the stats of deaths in Staten Island, and they were saying, my God, everybody in Staten Island seems to be dying from heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> Every death certificate seems to say myocardial infarction or some kind of heart-related ailment. What the hell's going on in Staten Island? It must be that pollution from Jersey that's coming over <laughs> to poison everybody, right? It's a stink. <laughs> well, you know what it was? It was actually fraud. 
the death certificates were fraudulent. What was happening was that uh, the funeral homes, in a rush to bury people, couldn't wait for the actual death certificates. So they were forging the death certificates <laughs> and they were putting on myocardial infarction or heart disease on every one of them. And in fact, they weren't worth the paper that it was written on. Mm. All right. So I've learned that death certificates are not like really the end all be all. Yeah. Okay. We were actually just talking to uh, a, uh, a medical student who has started working in a hospital uh, a couple episodes ago. And what he, he actually told thing. us, it was the same kind of thing. He said, even when the doctor is being genuine with the documentation, there's only so much that they can really even write on it. If it's not something obvious, like a gunshot wound. So it's even, even now when it's, when it's accurate, it's still a gray area. It, it is great. And it, 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 but the layperson you know, would, would think that, oh, it's an accurate reflection of the cause of death. But in reality, it's it's more than likely not an egg. Mm. So, you know, we went through these 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 five bodies and now Swango was about to get out of jail. Remember, for lying to me for three years, mm-hmm. he's about to get out of jail. And he thinks he's going to just hop on a plane and go back to Africa and keep killing people. Well, not so fast. Not so fast, because we had made a determination that those five people were killed uh, by one of one of two drugs, either epinephrine, which is adrenaline, you know, which mm-hmm. sped off their heart and killed them, or something called succinylcholine, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a paralytic. In other yep. words, if they want to put a tube down you, the hospital, they call it sucks. They yep. would give you that and then they would be able to put a tube down you. And uh, we found traces of that, and there was no medical reason why there should be traces of that. But what really convinced Swango to plead guilty and save us the trial is that we said to Swango, look, uh, if you go to trial, and even if you win, all we're going to do is put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe where there's an arrest warrant for you. Mm. killing women and children in Zimbabwe. So had they done like their own research and found out that he was doing it over there? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So, you know what? That convinced him in short order that he would avoid the death penalty himself if he pled guilty. Mm. And and when he pled guilty, this was an opportunity for the families (laughs) <laughs> to get up and talk about, you know, dad and, and dad's life. And that part is very moving, you know, because when you do the investigations, you know, you try to stay removed from the emotion and all. But mm-hmm. when it comes down to the particularly the sentencing and the families get to speak, it is very, very, very emotional. Well, Swango was sentenced to uh, multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. And the judge said something that I had never heard before. The judge said, Dr. Swango, he says, I'm sentencing you to life without uh, the possibility of parole. But if Congress should change the law and grant parole, your parole is denied in advance. (laughs) So he was not getting out any way, shape or form. And he's in Supermax Federal Penitentiary where the terrorists are and other Super bad guys. And then he also pled guilty to killing Cynthia McGee. So the student that hit with his car, all charges were were dropped against him. 
And one of the good things, one of the good things to come out of this case is that it radically changed the world of medical credential because people say, wow, if we could actually hire a doctor at a VA hospital who poisoned people and there was a record of it, we have to go back and start looking at credentials. And since that time, medical credentialing has improved dramatically, dramatically, where there was maybe one or two people assigned. Now they have offices assigned and they're double and tri triple checking all the credentials and the background and everything. Still not impossible, but, so, but it's much, much, much harder for a person with a bad background to get into a hospital. Much, much harder. However, what happens when you have a pandemic? What happens when all of a sudden you can't get doctors, you can't get nurses, your emergency room is backed up, you're desperate for people. Yeah, suddenly things get overlooked. Things are gonna get overlooked. You know, they have a lot of traveling doctors, traveling nurses who travel from hospital to hospital during the pandemic. The overwhelming majority of them, of course, are, are, are super. But this gives an opportunity for one or two bad folks that may have been caught in the credentialing process to kind of sneak in. You know, and that, that, that's something we're concerned about. So with him, he never really had a smoking gun. It just came down to basically saying, hey, you need to admit you're guilty. There's, not, you're, there's no way out of it. Well, I would say that the, the smoking gun, if we went to trial, was the toxicology, which showed that the deaths were actually consistent with epinephrine or succinylcholine poisoning, all right, and that he was the last person seen with that. With that. So after Swango, um, the next case, of course, uh, was a nurse that I had, um, and that nurse was Kristen Gilbert. So when you were done with him, they basically just said, hey, we're going to put you on everyone we think who's murdering it was, um, it was, uh, they, you know, it was pretty close. I mean, just when one case was ending, yeah. interestingly enough, another case service and then another yeah, case go. and another case. And I think what happened is people became more aware of the remote possibility that something like, like, like this can actually happen, you know, and, and has happened not only in the VA, of course, but throughout the country and throughout the world. The most recent case, I don't know if you saw this, was just the other day. Here's the New York Times. Texas nurses found guilty of killing four patients by injecting them with air. Yeah, yeah, and, I saw the headline for it. Right? And this is just the other day. So it's not just a matter of older cases. These cases, every couple of months, there's a new case that surfaces somewhere in the world. I mean, last year, there was this incredible case about a nurse in Germany suspected of killing about 300 patients, actually killed, proven to kill over 100 patients. And the interesting thing is, and we've had the same thing with a nurse calling in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, is that when the first hospital suspected something, they didn't say anything to the second hospital when that employee moved on because they were just happy that that employee moved on. All right. Well, he's not our problem anymore. He's gone. He's not our problem. So like Nurse Cullen went from hospital to hospital to hospital. Well, the nurse in Germany did the same thing, went from hospital to hospital and hospital. But the interesting thing about Germany, and I worked with the German police on this case, and they were fantastic. 
because they had to exhume bodies in three different countries. Mm. You know, I mean, because people were buried in three different countries. They, they were incredible. The German police has actually charged the managers that suspected these people really? of murder and didn't say anything and allowed them to go on to the next hospital. They actually charged them with crimes. Now, they haven't been convicted yet. We'll see what happens. But that's the only instance that I'm aware of anywhere in the history where the managers were actually charged with aiding and abetting these leave people it to by moving on, yeah. allowing them to move on to the next hospital. But that, I mean, it makes sense, though. The, they should do that here. Yeah. With the totally. first guy, if that woman had never brought it up that she was working with someone who had poisoned his co-workers, how, would you have ever caught him? No. You know, probably not. Probably not. You know, um, and the the interesting thing is that it takes usually so many deaths before suspicion even is occurred. You know, look, if somebody gets murdered, a jogger gets murdered. Boom, there's an investigation. Yeah, it's you know? pretty obvious. Right. But in a hospital, if someone dies unexpectedly, it's they usually don't pick it up until there are multiple deaths. For right. instance, they come out with something like this. Every time that Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Mm. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation for two weeks, the death rate goes down. <laughs> well, does that mean that Nurse Bruce is a serial killer? No, because maybe Bruce Nurse has the most complex cases. Maybe mm. these people were suspected to die or whatever. But when we take a further look and we see these people weren't expected to die when they did, uh, then things get suspicious. But how many people did Nurse Bruce actually kill before we became suspect that mm. something happened? You know, there's a there's a famous statement by. Uh, let me see if I, I can just find it here for a second because yeah, yeah, we, um, we got we got a minute, no problem. Uh, oh, this is it. There was a medical serial killer back in the 70s. His name was Donald Harvey. All right. And this is what Donald Harvey said. This is a great quote. He says, after I didn't get caught for the first 15 people I murdered, <laughs> the first 15 people I murdered, I thought it was my right. I appointed myself judge, prosecutor and jury. So I played God. Now, look. If you kill 15 people and nobody even questions you, is it so outrageous to think that maybe you are? <laughs> yeah, you're going to get you away know with what it. I mean? You're killing 15 people and your coworkers don't even question it. They didn't even question it. That's why medical serial killers have gotten away with so many, so many murders throughout the world. The number one, by the way, the number one undisputed, undefeated medical serial killer of all time so far, so far, is Dr. Harold Shipman from England. Dr. Harold Shipman killed about 300 of his patients, not in the hospital. He used to make house calls. Yeah, I've, he, I've actually heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah. He would make house calls. And uh, I spoke with detectives there in England, and they said to me, well, Bruce, he killed somebody in that house and somebody in that house, somebody in that house. Okay, and wasn't suspected at all. Wasn't suspected at all. So I think up until recently, uh, because of some of the shows, some of the movies, 
You know, I hope that my my book actually made a difference. People now are really starting to wake up to the possibility as remote that it is, the possibility that someone could be intentionally harming patients. The most recent one at the VA was just last year in West Virginia, a nurse Rita May killed seven patients. I mean, it. So when you when you come across this many people that are killing this many people, have you as an investigator or just the investigating body that takes care of all this? Is there like some kind of psychological thing that they have in common? Ah, great question. Great question. And this is my and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can tell you what the professionals tell me. All right. Um, There are a number of reasons. But the number one reason, the number one reason, and it's not for everyone, but the number one reason is something called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is Munchausen syndrome is you might intentionally harm yourself and go into a hospital to, sh- you know, because you want to get the attention and, you know, you want people to kind of fawn all over you. Mm-hmm. Well, Munchausen proxy syndrome by proxy is when you harm somebody else and then bring them in like a mother sometimes will ha- intentionally harm a child. Right. And bring that child into the hospital and try to show the staff, oh, they're such a caring parent. Oh, help my child. Oh, do something with me. All to get attention. Mm-hmm. Well, what these nurses and the nurse in, in England and uh, a number of nurses in the United States and around the world, when you look at their evaluations, it's very interesting. Because their evaluations show that they're like an average okay nurse, except when it comes to a code. That's when they excel. And we know what a code is. Somebody goes into cardiac arrest and the bells and whistles going off and the crash guard comes running in and it's very exciting. Mm. Well, they crave that excitement of the Mm. code because they want to show off to their coworkers what an outstanding caregiver they are, how knowledgeable yeah. they are, how, how wonderful they are in the code. Right? Kristen Gilbert, Kristen Gilbert, who was convicted of killing three patients, but we suspect her probably killing about 30. Um, doctors at the hospital would say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want that nurse Kristen Gilbert there. She's outstanding. She takes control. She starts barking orders at the young interns who are scared shitless because they've never been through anything like this. Mm-hmm. And that's what she loved. She loved that excitement of the code. And many, many medical serial killers fall into that group, but not certainly not all of them. Some just have a fascination with death. You know, they enjoy, they enjoy playing God and, and, and that's in it for them. And in very, very, very rare occasions, there's even a profit motive because this last guy, this last Texas nurse that we talked about, he told his wife in a recorded conversation that he killed these people because he wanted them to stay as long as possible in the ICU so he can make overtime money. You know, and Harold Shipman, actually, the way he got caught is he changed the will of one of his patients and made himself the beneficiary, you know, <laughs> and so the family said, what? <laughs> Another thing on the on the whole serial killer case, uh, they did they did some research a few years ago. And I don't, I don't know if it was a cat scan or whatever. They When they scan your brain, 
they actually yeah. found that the whole frontal uh, cortex is has like no activity on every single serial killer. Now, you or I could have that same thing going on, but it doesn't mean we're a serial killer, but all serial killers have it, which to me well, is fascinating. But what it means, God knows. They're a very interesting group. You know, um, my vision of a serial killer had always been like a Charles Manson type, you know, a guy with a crazy haircut and a swastika around his forehead. Somebody. Lost his mind. Right. But when I met Kristen Gilbert, she was actually a kind of an attractive soccer mom, you know? Oh, hi, Bruce. Yeah, I'll talk to you when I come back. You know, I have to pick up my kids at the game. And when I when I come back, you know, like it was just an every every day occurrence, you know? Um, there was a, a, a nurse in Italy who, um, after she killed her patient, she would take a selfie with herself and the person <laughs> she had just killed. All That's right. some balls right there. You know, I mean, this they're a very they're a very interesting group of people, I must say. Uh thank God the number is relatively small compared to just the wonderful doctors and nurses out there, but um it does exist. And well, as you how many how many years did you end up, you know, investigating all the all these people? Well, I I started right, you know, Swango, I, I started in, in the uh in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And since that time, you know, I've, I've been involved in these cases throughout the world. And, um, and I've lectured throughout the world, even, even in, in the Middle East, in, in, in England, in, in Scotland, in uh, Wales. Um, you know, it's interesting. Some, comp- some countries, Italy, for some reason, has had their, more than their fair share of medical serial killers. Very, very interesting. And uh, Germany has had a, a few. Uh, Germany actually has potentially the first coronavirus serial killer. Okay, there's a doctor there that's suspected of killing coronavirus patients. Hasn't been proven yet. Hasn't been proven hmm. because it's very, very difficult. Yeah, I imagine. Prove, but um, they're working on it. And the German police, as you can imagine, are very thorough. Oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they do everything thorough. thorough. So um, they 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 do excellent work. They, they now are you are you still doing it as a career, or now is it just more of a hobby that that you have an interest in? No, it's 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 more of an interest now. You know, uh, after I, I left the VA in two thousand and five, and then I uh, was doing internal investigations for a major healthcare network here in New York City for fifteen years. And then I retired from there. And then I went to help Nassau County out with their inspector general for a while. And then I retired from that. So right now I'm just, you know, writing and researching and uh, doing podcasts and (laughs) speaking. You know, now that the COVID's coming down, I can get out live again and speak. I have this huge PowerPoint and everything I do. And I speak to police. But I, I tell you, the most interested people are usually the nurses, I find the nurses like really the most interested audience. Like, t- like taking notes or? <laughs> um, not nurses. <laughs> not notes on how to do it. But you know what? After I give these presentations, inevitably, I'll be approached by a nurse or a doctor who'll say, you know, Bruce, as I think about it, going back a while, there was this employee. Mm. 
and we kind of suspected something, but everybody was afraid to come forward. You know, nobody wanted to say anything to management. In fact, there's a terrible story about what happened to two whistleblowers in Texas about a doctor. This is what happened. There's a place called Kermit, Texas. Kermit, Texas is in the oil basin in Texas. And you know how hard it is to find doctors for Kermit? Yeah, I bet. <laughs> we have to go all the way, you know, the Philippines, mm -hmm. Korea, whatever. So these two nurses is a small hospital. They were actually the entire compliance department. And they suspected this doctor of harming patients. So they go to the management and they lay it out. And the management says, well, did you actually see this um, doctor harm any patients? No, we didn't see him. But, you know, we, we know what, what the outcomes yeah. were. I say, well, let me ask you a question then. There's, um, is your background so perfect? I mean, if we drug tested you right now, are you going <laughs> to pass or are you going to fail? Is your license and, and all your certificates up to snuff? I only ask you that because... You know, if we do an investigation, then in some kind of ways, like you're under investigation. Nice company. <laughs> so these nurses said, oh, cow, what the hell do we do now? We don't know what to do now. So one nurse said, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to the Texas State Medical Board about this mm -hmm. doctor so they could take care of it. Well, the doctor gets wind of this, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. and boy, is he pissed. So he calls the local sheriff, who happened to be one of his patients, and he said, hey, sheriff, um, I think these nurses are intentionally trying to harm my reputation and may have violated the law. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. And he gets a search warrant for their hospital computers, and he finds that they are the authors of the anonymous letter to the state, he actually has them arrested and charged with misuse of official information, which is a felony in them. Mm. All right. And they go to trial and the jury's out for about 15 minutes and they come back and they say, are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, <laughs> not to be criminally prosecuted, but what kind of message does that send out? Oh, absolutely. To all the other potential whistleblowers out there, you know, to say, hey, did, did you hear about those two nurses in Texas? Did you hear what happened to them? Oh, yeah, they won at the end, you know, and they got money. And but meanwhile, they got fired. Nobody else wanted to hire them. You know, they were unemployed for the whole process. They had an arrest record. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, I mean, if you're a whistleblower, get ready for a hell of a ride. It ain't going to be right. fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. So, you know, so nursing organizations all around the country were very supportive of, of these two, but the damage kind of was done. Mm. You know, when Kristen Gilbert, these nurses came forward and they, 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 they told our office what they suspected of her, of, of killing people with epinephrine. Mm. And even after, even after Kristen Gilbert was found guilty and got multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole, their co-workers were still pissed at them for going to the cops. Really? They said, do you know how you harm the reputation of this hospital? <laughs> now when people see this hospital, that's where the serial killer worked. That's where Kristen Gilbert, the serial killer worked. They don't think about all the lives we've saved. They don't think about all the wonderful 
science that we've done here. They don't think about that. They only think about Kristen Gilbert killing people. And that's what you whistleblower did. And that's the thanks they got for coming forward with this. Well, even even after sitting here talking to you, I'm now kind of second guessing the idea of going to the hospital if I need to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, you know what? I I wouldn't. I mean, I certainly if you have to go, you have to go. You know, the, the one the one thing that kind of bothered me a little bit, though, and with this pandemic is, you know, the first thing. The hospitals would not allow the family members in. They said right. it's a pandemic and you can't have any family members in. Now, I've always preached that you should have an advocate when you go in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Someone who politely, oh, very underlined, politely and professionally asks and questions what's happening. What's yeah. happening with you? You know, what medications are you getting? Because if I'm a serial killer, and your family is there and they're writing everything down and they're taking notes and all that. I'm not going to mess with you. You can have that. It's just the problem is most people, unless they're older and have a dying disease, don't have it. That's right. That's right. So you the hospital for a long time weren't even letting families in during mm. the pandemic. You could not go in. You could not go into or the Can you even go in now? I don't even know. I think it's better now. I think I it's better now, but I'm, you know, I'm honestly not even sure. I guess it varies from hospital to hospital. Mm. So I'm, I'm sure that any existing serial killers were taking advantage of that. Oh, I but, guarantee uh, you. So, so if we were to go to the hospital right now, is having an advocate kind of the only way we can do our best to avoid something like that? Yeah, listen, you know, I wouldn't worry about it because yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very, very rare occasion. But I, I tell people, you know, it's always good to have an advocate. It's always good to show that there's somebody there watching and who cares. Because if you are intent on harming somebody, you're going to pick. And there are many patients who never get any visitors. Mm-hmm. Nobody really seems to care. That was very sad at the VA, you know, that right. there were some patients that just kind of lingered there without any visitors, without anybody there for them. And, well, and especially and, in that era. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty I imagine you had a lot of Vietnam vets that didn't have anyone there. Right. Is that 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 was pretty sad, you know. But look, I mean, I'm as confident as anybody when I go in a hospital, maybe just a little bit more aware than most, but it's 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 not something that would keep me up, you know, worrying about it. But mm-hmm. it does happen. Yeah, I mean, so you can have a healthcare proxy, but most of the time that only ha- that only comes into play when you're you can't make decisions yourself. So, exactly. I mean, in it, I would trust your medical professionals, but in this scenario, you would be screwed anyway. So it all comes out. I mean, Bruce, throughout your years, how many do, how many of these did you come across? Well, I've actually physically worked on five of them, but hmm. there have been, you know, many, many. All, oh, I guarantee it. But world. so you worked on five throughout the world over how many years? Uh, throughout the world, I would say, you know, I've, I've seen numbers, but I'm not so far, I'm not so sure how far they go back. But um, at any given time, there are, you know, maybe 20 or 30 active investigations around the world, mm. whether that results in a conviction or not, because I'm aware of a couple active investigations right now. Now, here, does that also the United include... States people who are just they're not good at medicine and they suck <laughs> like they're just doing it badly. So malpractice instead yeah. yeah yeah you know and that and that's certainly different that's mm. certainly different Look, but is that know, included in the in the investigations or no. is that a separate department no. oh even no. better no. 
<laughs> no. You know, the, the number three cause of death in the United States are medical errors. Mm-hmm. And medical errors is not the same as intentionally murdering somebody. So uh, my wife, uh, my wife's an ER tech and she's working on becoming a nurse. And years ago, I was supposed to get a vasectomy and she knew the guy who was going to be doing it. And the situation didn't uh, pan out for me getting the vasectomy at the time. I had to reschedule it and blah, 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 whatever. Later, she comes to work with the guy who was supposed to be doing it. And she goes, thank God you never got it with him because I work with him now and he has nothing but comes back, comebacks. Like wow. every single one of his patients has an issue. And it's not like he's killing people. They no, are literally just having issues after the fact. You know, no, I know. it's an interesting world. <laughs> and like I say, the overwhelming majority are just truly outstanding, dedicated people. But oh, absolutely. almost every time I give a presentation, I hear a story like that. You know, there's one doctor... We should have really said something. We should have really done something. You know, it was years ago and, and all of that. But uh, well, I guarantee people even outside of the medical field, I, almost everyone I've talked to in whatever their career is at some point in their life has been like, yeah, we had that guy or girl. They were just weird and something was up there and it just rubbed them wrong. Jerry, yeah. Jerry and I did. We know. But like it, everyone, you everyone's had some run around or run into where they had someone who just a little off. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that's very true. That's very yeah. true. Yeah, one, one that stands out for me, Grizz, is uh, uh, there was one guy, he, I didn't work with him directly, but uh, I had interacted with him because of my career. And every time I met with this guy, I left thinking, there's something really wrong with this person. <laughs> like he, he acts normal, but there's something wrong here. Mm. And I, I couldn't ever put my finger on it. So it's not like I could say, hey, you should go check this guy out. I just mm. told my coworkers, I was like, there's something wrong with that guy. He's really weird. Mm. And like a year after I met him, he got arrested for massive, massive quantities of child porn. Oh, wow. this one. Yes. Yeah. Is that so I was I right. As well? What's that? Oh, no, this is actually somebody different. Oh. Uh, child porn is a big thing now. The uh, yeah. Internet's around. But uh, no, this is a separate incident. But that does happen a lot more common now. So both of us happen to know a man who was convicted of, of pedophilia and child porn. And the day he was getting arrested, he was talking to me and I'm just thinking in my head, man, you're fucking weird. <laughs> like, there's something it's just a very odd conversation going on here. And literally that day he's arrested. And we're just like, what? <laughs> wow. wow. So it just, you know? just goes to show you, you don't know what you're going to walk into. Not that I'm going to got- say people should stay out of the hospital because no, if you got to go to the hospital, you got to go. I don't want to give that message now. No, no. I mean, I, listen, the people who are in the hospitals, they have to put up with a lot of BS oh, and they yeah. do it fully willingly just to make you better. So yeah. they're there to help you. <laughs> totally. That's, that's right. Completely. Now, Bruce, you had mentioned uh, a little while back here while we were talking that you had a book about this, right? Yes. And uh, the, what, what is that book about? Just generally well, your experiences? Well, yeah, the book is called um, Behind the Murder Curtain. Because mm-hmm. as I said, you pull that curtain, you know, around you and the and the victim, and nobody sees. That's where the name comes from, behind the murder curtain. And it's about uh, suspicious deaths uh, from medical serial killers at the VA. So it's VA hospitals throughout the country, and the investigations that I had conducted, of course, with help, not by myself, certainly, with a right. lot of help. And it, it's a it's a very interesting book, and it kind of lays out how these cases surfaces. Uh, you know, what happened to these people and how each case was a little different than the next and the number of victims. 
there's a, an interesting case in there about a uh, physician that was doing medical research. And in order to get funded, he had to find a certain number of people that suffered from this particular ailment that he was doing research. So he went into veterans' medical records and he altered their medical records <laughs> to show that they would meet all the requirements to get into this study, put them in their study, and they died as a result of being given these investigational drugs they should have never been given. So that's another story that, that that's in the Was book. he intentionally trying to kill them? Or oh, no, like, no, he wasn't intentionally no, he just, trying to kill them. He just wanted to get people in the study. And um, they should have never been in the study. Man, so that's fascinating. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm this sounds interesting. Up. I'm going to have to read this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, now, not necessarily related to murder. Uh, you came from a law enforcement background. What did you think of actually having to write a book about your experiences? Did you write that yourself? Well, no, no, um, because I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a, a William Shakespeare. By <laughs> I'm not either. Imagination. So actually what happened was I, at the time I was the president of an organization called the Society of Professional Investigators. And when I was being introduced, somebody introduced me as an expert on medical serial killers. And there are actually two authors in the audience. One of them used to be an editor for the New York Post, the Daily News and CNN. And he approached me and he said, would you like to do a book on this? And mm. I said, sure. And that's how the book came about. So it's actually myself and, and two co-authors. I kind of told the story, but they actually put it in in a very readable form. That's awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, that's a totally different uh, skill set. So I was curious how you transitioned to that. I, I know that I'm not nearly a wordsmith enough to write a book about anything. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Even if you were, it's extraordinarily difficult to get a publishing house to publish anything if you've never published before and if you're not a celebrity. Yeah. They just don't want to spend the money on you. The way my book got published is because the other two guys had published before and they had a history of successful books. If I had written the same book with the same words and brought it to a publisher, it would have never been accepted because I'm not a celebrity and I don't have that history of doing uh, uh, successful books. So I think it's kind of like, it almost seems like putting the cart before the horse, but that's the way it is. Didn't, um, can't remember his name now, Jackson, hmm? the guy who went to jail in China. Didn't he publish his own book? Because Oh, Chase Jackson, works? yeah. So yeah. you can self-publish on Amazon, but it's not the same uh Exposure yeah, that you would, any yeah. anybody anybody could self-publish that I had no interest in doing, mm. you know, because like I said, I, I'm, I'm not really an author. And I had this opportunity to work with professional authors who oh, actually yeah. put this book together and made it very, very, it's a very fast read. I mean, like in two nights, you'll blitz right through it. And it's a bit of an eye opener, you'll see. So since we're on the topic, where can uh, where can we get it and tell our uh, listeners to find it? You know, you know, just on Amazon, I mean, you could go to, there's a website for the book. It's behindthemurdercurtain.com. Mm -hmm. But you could go to Amazon or, or any one of those sellers and you could download it electronically or it's available in soft cover now. It's not expensive, you know, and, and it's a fast read, but I think you'll find it very, very interesting read. We'll definitely have to check that out. <laughs> I think that is that that's a pretty good place to end it. Give uh, our listeners a lot to think about. So we really appreciate having you on the show. 
Well, it's my, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. And uh, through the website, if they have any questions, they could contact me directly. I'm always happy to chat with people and, and answer. Yeah, it's, it's funny. From the website, I actually found people who knew Dr. Swango growing up. <laughs> they, they would email me. It was very interesting. And, of course, I get emails from people all over the world who suspect something happened. You yeah. know, um, as, as, as you could imagine. Now, and, in that uh, case, do you point them in the right direction or do you? I, do, I you... do my best. You know, it, it's very, very difficult depending oh, on where, where, where they are located and what the circumstances are. And it may have just been bad medicine. It may not have been murder, you know. Um, yeah. It may have been I'm a still blown error. away. Zimbabwe was going after Schwango. Like, holy cow. <laughs> like, I never would have seen that coming. Uh, <laughs> Well, he didn't see it coming either. Yeah, no. <laughs> Although he may, maybe he was just lax and said, "Screw it, I'm going to kill him however the hell I want over here. They won't look for me." Yeah, it's 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 truly amazing the numbers, the number of victims. Truly un- oh, yeah. unbelievable. Well, uh, Bruce, like I said, uh, we're going to send our listeners to uh, find your books. So they can find out more about that. And again, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we really had a great time talking to you. It's, it's my pleasure. Uh, Grizz, I'm a little nervous about going to the doctor now. <laughs> uh, you'll be fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, after, so. after recording this, we did find out, we did some research. Um, a couple different things. A, background checks a lot better on doctors nowadays. Maybe not foolproof, but a lot better. Yeah, versus the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, B, nowadays, any strange death like at all like all deaths that happen in a hospital are inspected by a third party that have nothing to do with the hospital so they can't be coerced as easily to be like oh it's just john smith he kills people all the time (laughs) that's right so if you die because of a freak sex accident and you die in the hospital during your treatment everyone's going to find out so don't do that yeah it's true (laughs) so Uh, they, they look into it as, say, as we right, said no. in a as we said in a previous episode, make sure you tie off your dildos before you put them in your ass. It's, it's very important service announcement. Very important. <laughs> uh, back to your regular. For some reason, program. they all come in saying <laughs> they fell on it. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, back to uh, Bruce. Uh, Bruce <laughs> is uh, he was quite a character, and man, he did a good job doing what he did. Listen, I I feel 80s and 90s, man, to be alive. Yeah. There had to be some scary shit time because, like, that's when serial killers were at their height. Nowadays. Yeah, that's when they, they started finding shit. all of them. And yeah. as, as he said, uh, those are just the ones that got caught. Yeah, exactly. But, like, you know, nowadays there's too many cameras and shit. But in the 80s and 90s, they were running rampant all over the place, just fucking murking people. Well, yeah, they learned from the 70s how much you could get away with and (laughs) took full advantage the next 20 years. I'm glad that we are living in the times we're living in, despite the crazy shit going on. I'd still rather be alive today than 30 years ago in my current form. 30 years ago, I was alive, (laughs) just not very very effective as a human. But anyway, Chris, do your thing. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. <sighs> You're diehard. Guys, <laughs> sorry. See you next week.
It's fucking December. What else am I supposed to do?